Heavenly Father, it is a joy, Father, to be here. It's a joy, Father, to be in the body of Christ and to share in the blessings that come from our joining together whenever that happens, Sundays or any day. Thank you for the reminder, Father, that our work extends well beyond this building through the lives of others we support. Thank you, Father, for the chance to to be taught in the Word and to be encouraged through prayer and worship. Thank you for these tools and how they build us up and how they prepare us. But I ask, Father, we would also be men and women who take our preparation and put it to work and let what we learn in the Scripture this morning, Father, do just that. Prepare us for work. Prepare us for service. Prepare us to honor you in some way. And consider all that we might do, Father, and all that we might say as a gift to you, as a service to you, and turn it, Father, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 25 into chapter 26, this is one of my favorite areas of Scripture. Let's remember where we've been. This is such a critical point in the book of Genesis and in the story of Jacob. We're going to come back to this moment at various points along the way, this focus on the question of who will inherit the promises and the blessing that God spoke first to Abraham. Collectively, these promises that God gave Abraham, we now call the birthright within the family of Abraham. Every family in ancient times honored and respected the birthright. And it was simply the privilege of the firstborn male to receive a greater inheritance than any other son in the family. That's what a birthright was in cultural terms. Specifically, we learned last week that the oldest son would inherit a double portion. So if there were six kids, six sons, then they would divide the inheritance up seven ways and give the oldest son two portions. That's what it meant to be the holder of the birthright. We also learned last week that the oldest son would normally be the one to receive that birthright and also more than just the inheritance, they'd also become the authority figure in the family. They'd become the new leader of the clan after the father's death. But that was dependent on the father himself deciding to give it to the oldest. The oldest normally had it, but it was still a matter of the father's choice. And then as we looked at Abraham's life, we realized the birthright in his case has taken on special significance because God granted Abraham unparalleled blessing and promises, something that no one else has ever received. And God has told Abraham that these blessings and promises are not only his, but they are inheritable. These will flow further in the family of Abraham. They will move on past his life. They will not die with his body, that they are generational promises. So by his promises to Abraham and by the fact that they can be inherited, God has created this unprecedented birthright. Think about how significant Abraham's birthright is now compared to what normally men would have to offer to their sons. But God's promises to Abraham and this birthright came with two caveats, which we looked at last week. There are two caveats to this. First, the inheritance God gave Abraham is largely a future inheritance. There are some earthly components to the blessings that God gave Abraham. There are some things his children will receive and enjoy in the present age, yes. But most of the inheritance, most of the significance of it, will not materialize in Abraham's physical life, nor in Isaac's, nor in Jacob's, and so on. Most of it is eternal. It won't materialize until they're in the kingdom. Abraham and his descendants don't receive that full inheritance until a resurrected body, living with Christ Jesus in his kingdom, in the thousand-year reign on earth. 
So that caveat creates this very interesting and important issue in the story that we're going to follow as we move forward in the text over the next few weeks. And here's the interesting issue that it raises. Only those who would believe in the promise of God in this blessing and these future promises, only those who would actually believe in that word will find any value in the birthright. What value is there in a birthright that won't materialize in this physical life? Only if you believe and trust in God's word and in his power to bring about those promises in a future kingdom, only then will you count this inheritance as something worth having. Otherwise, you see it as worthless. Some crazy promise that granddad Abraham told us about. And what good does it do anyway? Get and put food on the table. So that's the first caveat. The second caveat to God's inheritable promises is that God himself gets to decide who will inherit the birthright. He doesn't leave that decision to the patriarch. He doesn't rest simply on convention and culture to decide who will receive it. He has said and he will show himself to always select the man who will receive it. You remember he's already been doing this. We saw in the story of Abraham that he selected Isaac, not Ishmael, even though the culture would have said Ishmael should receive the birthright. We noted last week, though, that because Abraham's sin was a part of how Ishmael came into being, his sin with Hagar, that clouded and complicated the whole conversation about Isaac and Ishmael. It may have tempted us to assume that God chose Isaac because Isaac merited the birthright in relationship to Ishmael, or that God rejected Ishmael because of Abraham's sin. We might have confused sovereignty for circumstance. And so to make sure that we don't confuse that in the next case, in the study of Isaac and his children, we're watching God going out of his way to emphasize his sovereignty and his choice of who receives the birthright. And he does it in this very interesting way. And this is where we were last week. He began by withholding Rebecca's ability to conceive for 20 years, even though she was the wife appointed for Isaac. And the one that God said would produce the next holder of the birthright. But he's not letting her have any children for 20 years. And then when God responded to Isaac's prayer concerning the fact that his wife couldn't conceive, he communicates clearly. Now I'm letting the child come. I want you to see my hand is all over this process. It's all happening according to my power. And then. He puts twins in her body when we know that only one child, one male child can receive the birthright. It's as if he goes out of his way to create this dilemma that begs for an answer. Which child and how will we decide? And then he causes the twins to fight in her womb, which then gives rise to Rebecca's question. She takes note of the wrestling. And so she asks God, what does this mean? Isn't it great how God does that? He'll even prompt the perfect question so that the answer he's waiting to give us has an audience ready to receive it. So she asks, what's going on? And he says, well, let me tell you what's going on. He says, I have put two nations in your womb, two children who will themselves be the fathers of nations. Look at that verse again with me as we start back in the text. This is how important this verse is to our study of not only this particular moment, but to the whole story of Genesis. Genesis 25, 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. God's answer to Rebecca was worded and timed to present an undeniable statement of his sovereignty concerning the birthright. 
He created two boys so that he would have two nations come from her nations. He says that are separated from birth. They're they're decided in advance which one will be which their destinies were set and established by God. One would be stronger than the other. And God has determined who that will be. The younger will be the stronger. The younger will be the superior. The older will serve the younger. And in case the world was not willing to recognize God's handiwork and acknowledge his power to control such things, God adds another element, timing. He assigns the birthright to the younger, skipping over the older, and does it before either of them are born, Paul told us in Romans. Ordinarily, the older would have received the birthright by custom. But God reverses this pattern intentionally, So that no one would look back on it later and say it turned out just the way it should have. What we have to do is look back on it and say, God did this. He caused them to struggle in the room. He caused Rebecca to inquire. Through that opportunity, he gave her the answer before the birth happened. That's why he had them struggle. So that she would ask the question before they were revealed as twins when the birth happened. So that then Paul could go in Romans 9 and say, before either did anything good or bad, so that God's choice will stand, he said, the older shall serve the younger. So by presenting his choice of the younger over the older, before they were born, God prevents us from falling back on any excuse for how the younger ended up with the birthright. So now let's see how that plays out, because the story doesn't end there, of course. In fact, it's just getting interesting. What comes next in the lives of these two boys is the manner by which God's prophecy comes to life. But it's a surprising one and it begs some questions. Let's look at what happens next, starting in verse 24. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment. And they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. So Isaac was 60. Remember we said last week that he's now waited 20 years since he married. He married at 40. So here we see again God's work in holding back the pregnancy until this time. And on the day that Rebecca delivered, Moses says, Behold, there were twins, just as God promised. The first to come forth from her was red. All over, it says, well, red here, meaning the hair is red, right? It's a red haired man, but it's a boy that's so hairy that he comes out like a hairy garment. And the Hebrew word here literally means ruddy or reddish. And because it was red, they named him Esau. That's what the name means, red. So he was named after his appearance, red. Later, the name Esau is found in the name of Edom. Edom is the nation founded from this man. This is the nation that came from him. And Edom itself means red as well. So the name carries forward. Now, the second born son, the one that follows Esau, he comes out. Literally, it says clutching the heel of Esau. And the Hebrew word for heel is Akiev. And so you have he's clutching the heel, the Akiev. And based on that curious way in which he leaves the womb, the parents name the second son Yaakov, which is Jacob. And Yaakov comes from the same root as Akiv. So it's a play on words. Heel catcher, in other words, is what they name their son based on what he's doing as he leaves the womb. Now, his name is an invented name. They literally made up a name, heel catcher, for their son to play off of heel. 
Later events in Jacob's life will start to suggest some additional meaning to his name, but at the time it's given to him, it's just a fun name. It's a play on words. I want you to note here that this name carries no negative connotation. Not from the text. He's just grabbing his brother's heel. So we call him heel catcher. It's just funny. It's just cute. That's all it is. Some interpreters, I think, have taken the name too far, and they assign meanings like thief or deceiver. But, friends, those interpretations are simply not accurate. That's not what the text says. There's nothing about his name that would lead us to those conclusions. The name is simply a playful reminder of how he was born. Though it does, as I said, assume some additional meaning over his life, we have to be careful as we go there. We'll do that as we move through the story. But as we go into the story of Jacob and go further in the text, in the chapters to come, I'm going to continue to challenge us as Bible students to rethink many of the popular notions that have attached to Jacob, to this man and to his life, particularly concerning his personality and his behavior. It's safe to say if you have ever studied Jacob in the book of Genesis and have done so under somebody's tutelage, then I'm going to make a guess that you've been exposed to many of these popular notions. The ones that say Jacob was the sneaky thief who tricked his brother and his father in order to receive the birthright. Or he was a selfish, scheming kid who eventually broke up his family by his schemes. If that's the kind of storyline you've heard, then I need to ask you to set those notions aside for the duration of this study. In fact, challenge yourself to find them in the text. You won't. Let the text of Scripture speak to you about this man and about his real nature and his real personality. And see if you don't come to a different perspective. And see if that doesn't radically alter your entire appreciation of the story of Jacob. This is the man, after all, who God names Israel and uses to bring forth his chosen people. Look at verse 27 and see if you don't see that change already. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Moses' storytelling here of the lives of these boys moves very quickly into adulthood, as you notice. We jump right into their adult life, and we're told Esau is a skillful hunter, man of the field. And Jacob, on the other hand, is described as the peaceful man living in the tents. Now, I'm playing on the stereotypes there, right? This is where the stereotypes begin, right here in this verse. Immediately, we have our first opportunity to dispel one of the most common misconceptions concerning Jacob because when you hear that Esau was the skillful hunter out in the field and Jacob is staying in the tents with the women you're tempted to just picture in your mind a scene from a Disney cartoon on the one hand we have this rugged outdoorsman Esau he has the size 46 chest and the 30 inch waist right and he has a squared off jaw and he has the tan skin and the chiseled good looks it just reminds you of me just think me if you just now, as, as I've been reminded, I have a face for radio, so I'm, I'm, okay with, I'm okay with that. On the other hand, we have Jacob, who is the mama's boy living back in the tent. He's pasty, he has the mousy voice, he has a weak constitution, he enjoys spending days sewing and cooking and planting flowers and so on, right? Tell me you haven't heard something like that. At least some of you have, I'm sure. Contributing to the stereotype is verse 28 which tells us that Esau was Isaac's favorite, while Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. There's the mama's boy and the man's man. Based on those assumptions, 
we're prepared to accept, in many cases, a false storyline. And it's often reinforced, I might add, by lazy preaching. And by lazy, I mean that there's no attempt to go back into the text of Scripture and validate any of these assumptions. We just perpetuate the stereotypes because they make great preaching material. Look at it again with me this morning. Look at what we're learning here in the text. And I think you're going to find with me as we read it, the opposite is true. First, Esau, we're told, is a skillful hunter. Now, hunting in and of itself is not a negative pursuit, and the Bible does not say that it is. There's nothing wrong with hunting. But the Bible typically uses the description of a skilled hunter in a negative way, as a negative connotation. You remember that from chapter 10, perhaps, when we looked at Nimrod. The evil, rebellious man who is set up as a poster child back in chapter 10 for rebellion against God, and his chief skill is hunting. Chapter 10, verse 9, it talks about him this way. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a great hunter before the Lord. But when we looked at that verse, you may remember in the Hebrew we came to understand that when it says a hunter before the Lord, the before is actually in Hebrew a sense of in defiance to, to be contrary to, to be in opposition to. That's what before the Lord meant in Hebrew. The purpose of the description is to paint a picture of a man who relies on his own strength, who will provide for himself, who does not need the Lord, who does not rely on the Lord, and is lacking in humility and obviously in faith. That's the sense, the connotation. Not that hunting produces that outcome, but it becomes a shorthand for making that point. Just as we've seen in other places in Scripture that the direction east has taken on a negative meaning in Scripture by association, we can see the kind of people who are associated with the east. And every time we see that association, the people who go to the east or live in the east, they're always the loser, spiritually speaking. They're always the unbeliever. They're always the rebellious one. They're the Cain. It'll eventually be the Esau. It was the Ishmael. So now we look at the word east and understand it is imbued with meaning. Well, similarly, the idea of a skillful hunter should be a red flag that pops up in our mind as soon as we read that. And we say to ourselves, ooh, I wonder if that's telling us something about this Esau character. Well, we need to read further to know for sure, but it should cause us to question. And we don't have to rely on supposition and association in order to understand Esau's heart because Hebrews in the New Testament, in chapter 12, verse 16, calls Esau out as a godless man. We'll come back to that verse at later points in our study when we look at him. But we know definitively from New Testament scripture, godless, not a godly man, unbeliever. We don't even have to question it anymore. So in the context of chapter 12 of Hebrews, which, by the way, uses Esau as a picture of someone who was near the truth, but never actually embraced it themselves. Who was exposed to something of God, but never actually took it in. That's Esau. So that's Esau. What about Jacob? We'll take a second look at verse 27. Jacob is described as a peaceful man. Now, the Hebrew word for peaceful is tam, T-A-M, which is the word literally blameless. That's the word blameless in Hebrew. It's the same word that was used earlier when we looked at Noah. God used the same word to describe Noah, a blameless man. It's the same word God used to describe Abraham. It's also used in Psalm 18 to describe a holy man who lives a way that is pleasing to the Lord. He is Tom, blameless. Does it challenge your assumptions a little bit when you learn that Jacob is described in the Bible as blameless? Remember, blameless does not mean sinless. 
It means you live in an upright way, upright living, endeavoring to please the Lord, maintaining a good testimony before men. Folks, it's the word we should all attain to if we could, if we would desire it to be blameless. So what about the living in the tents part? I think that's the part that really gets some people hung up. Why doesn't he go out like his brother? Why does he hang around the house? As some would say about their own teens, right? Why do you just hang around the house? Go out and do something useful. Well, here's another misconception. It's based on our ignorance of the culture. Living in tents does not mean remaining in the tent all day or being afraid to go outside or any of that kind of stuff. That's not what the phrase means at all. The term is a description of the life of a nomad. Nomads live in tents. Abraham was a man who lived in tents. Isaac is a man who lived in tents. If you think Jacob's a mama's boy, then you've got to think of the same thing for Isaac and Abraham. Because the term is the same term. It refers to shepherding and wandering from place to place with your herd so that they can go to new pastures. And of course, if you're moving around a lot, you can't build permanent structures, so you live in tents. Jacob followed in the footsteps of his grandfather and his father before him by remaining a wanderer, a man who lived a lifestyle of wandering, of living in tents. Esau, though, we're told, has rejected that. Look at what he does. Esau prefers, it says, to work in the field. Now, that's a term for farming. Folks, if you wander, you can't farm. Not well. You need to stay somewhere to be near the crops, to work the land for an extended period of time. Secondly, he prefers hunting. Now, what hunting meant in that culture meant rather than raise livestock for your meat, for your provision, you just live off the land. So he has rejected shepherding and he has rejected wandering. He wants to set up some area, claim some plot of land and live off it, farming it and hunting. That is a complete 180 degree opposite lifestyle of the one that his grandfather and his father established. Now, do you remember why Abraham and Isaac have refused to do what Esau is now doing and have taken on the burden of a wandering lifestyle? When we studied this before, we learned scripture telling us that they remained that way and never took any significant ownership in the land that God gave them. Because they understood the inheritance God promised was a future inheritance. And they were not willing to give a false impression about where they believed their inheritance lay. Their inheritance was not in the here and now. It was not in the land under their feet. It was in a future day, in a future inheritance. They were just occupying this land in the meantime. And so they resisted the opportunity to put down roots. They refused to show anyone that they feared this was the inheritance. And so they adopted a wandering lifestyle, according to Hebrews 11. That's what we were told. That's what it meant to be a wanderer. And now what do we find? Jacob continuing to live in this way while his brother Esau, forgetting that pattern, has gone on to do the worldly thing. So if remaining a wanderer is a sign of faith in God's promise, what does it mean that Esau has rejected that? What do we fairly conclude about his heart? And then we have the issue of Isaac and Rebekah and their favoritism of the one boy over the other. Isaac, we told, is clearly enamored by Esau's strength and by his ability to put meat on the table. He loved a taste of game. Now, that's somewhat understandable because, after all, Isaac has only known shepherding. And shepherding produces reliable meat sources, but they're not the most tasty compared to the exotic flavors that you can find in the world of animals you hunt. 
We have a lifestyle now where we can buy anything we want any day we want in the local grocery store. And, and we have a variety of tastes on our table, unlike any other culture in history. But in this day and age, life was a lot more monotonous when it came to your meals. You, you ate basically the same things every day. When I travel overseas, particularly to the third world and developing nations of the world, they live much more closely this style of life where they have a very regular, simple pattern of meals based on what's available and can be grown easily, supplemented by certain meat that's common in the area. But it's an exotic thing to get some type of meat that they're not used to showing up on the plate. And it's exciting. Well, if Isaac's got a son who can reliably and routinely produce that excitement, of course he likes it. I mean, there's no surprise in that, right? Is it fair to say, though, that Isaac's favoritism for Esau is driven by his flesh? Wouldn't that be a fair characterization when we consider what it is he really likes? The taste of game? That's reason to favor one son over another? Folks, there's no good reason to show favoritism for one child over another, no matter what they do in a given day to give you reason for that. The truth is, though, Isaac's choice of Esau was made worse by the fact that it's the result of a fleshly desire, not based on any kind of spiritual distinction that he's making, not based on anything significant and meaningful. It's just what he likes. Where does Rebecca stand in all this? We're told she favors Jacob, but what would explain her preference? What do we have to go on? I mean, what, what data do we have in the text that could show us an answer to that question? Well, remember the Lord, when he spoke concerning the twins, who did he speak to? The text says very clearly he spoke to her, to Rebecca. God's revelation concerning his plans for Esau and Jacob was spoken to only her. Now, we might have fairly expected her to share that with her husband, would we not? But I don't see any evidence that she's done that. She's holding Jacob dear in her heart because she believes in God's promise concerning the younger being the greater of the two, that God is working through the younger. She knows Jacob will be the son that God gives the birthright. But in the fact that she has not revealed these words to Isaac, she's not given her husband any opportunity to follow through on God's promise. He didn't seem to know there would be any twins. I'm assuming at this point he doesn't know that the younger or the older will serve the younger. I think you get a confirmation of my suspicions in verse 24 when it says, Behold, Rebekah gives birth to twins. I think that verse is being stated from the perspective of Isaac. Remember, no sonograms. There's no such test in this day. So Rebekah's been told she has twins. My guess is Isaac was surprised to find twins come out of the womb. Why didn't Rebecca share this with Isaac? Well, we could probably imagine many reasons, but I think one is obvious. Rebecca and Isaac aren't working together in this marriage. At a basic fundamental level, they don't seem to be partnered in their work for God. And Moses seems to be going out of his way to explain that in his discussion, in his narrative, showing it and bringing it to light for us. Rebecca has accepted the Lord's decree concerning Jacob. But she has not shared this yet with Isaac, or so it would seem. Then here's the dilemma it produces. It produces a war between the two parents, an unspoken war, an undeclared war, in which each is going to promote their preferred candidate. Isaac is going to promote Esau for the obvious reason. He's the oldest. He should naturally receive the birthright. And, by the way, he's a pretty good hunter. Rebecca, on the other hand, knows God's will having heard him speak to her concerning these two children. And she knows that something's going to have to give in this family if dad's ever going to acknowledge that it should be the younger. 
There seems to be one easy answer, right? Just tell him. God told me Jacob gets to be the one who has the birthright. Ah, but here's the problem. Here's the problem with not being transparent. Here's the problem with not sharing things in the beginning. What do you think Isaac's response is going to be to that statement now? Now that he has already shown a preference for Esau. Now that she's already shown a preference for Jacob. Now that it's apparent Esau is the man that he loves and that has the skills that Isaac admires. Now that all of that's in place, can't you see the conversation when Rebecca walks into the kitchen one day and says, you know, there's something I should have told you a long time ago, but um, Jacob, you know, the one I love and prefer, he needs to be the one you give the birthright to. God told me that. Right. How convenient. You see the problem? Can you detect a little tension developing in our story here? Moses doing his best to show us this dilemma and, and bring it to light. Isaac one day is going to transfer the birthright to one of his sons. And he in this culture has the authority to decide who it will be. And Rebecca can't challenge that. But the Lord has told Rebecca it must go to the younger. But Rebecca hasn't shared that revelation or so it would seem. Meanwhile, Isaac is proceeding under the natural assumption it's going to go to Esau. And he loves Esau, so it's only more certain than ever, right? And Rebecca is growing more and more concerned. How is she going to make sure that God's will is done? So she's going to begin to fear that either something be done to stop her husband from giving the birthright to the wrong child or else God's promise can't be fulfilled. And if you can't tell already that Isaac's family is sliding into this dysfunctional soap opera household, well, it's just beginning. You're going to see that so much more clearly in the week to come. As we come back next week into the text, the storylines just keep multiplying. I want you to hear your best weekday afternoon announcer voice with this, right? Will Rebecca reveal to Isaac that Jacob is God's favorite child? Will Isaac go against the Lord's wishes and grant the birthright to Esau anyway? How will the Lord ensure the preference for Jacob be honored? Tune in next week for our next episode. That's exactly how this family story goes. But what's so important about it is God has set it up. Now, he's not the author of their sin. He's not the one creating the desires in their heart to do the wrong thing. But he has put all of these ingredients in place, the two children, the natures of the children, so that when the decision comes down and when the final result is seen, his authority is unchallenged and his sovereignty is made clear. That's God's purpose in this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we finish today and then come back in the weeks to come as we move further in the story of Jacob, one of my favorite stories of Scripture, for the challenges it offers and for the ways it opens our eyes to God's work. Father, thank you, Lord, for the story of Jacob and Esau. Thank you, Father, for a family like Isaac and Rebecca that though they must have had many difficulties and have shown their weaknesses already, there is an encouragement to be seen, Father, in the way that you work through men and women like Isaac and Rebecca. Men and women who in the story of Scripture stand as pillars, as men and women we are to emulate, men and women we are to look up to in the way they followed you in faith and the way you used them to honor you and to serve your purposes. And yet they're real, Father. They're people who have weaknesses just like we do. If you can use men and women with the sin of Isaac and with the sin of Rebecca, as great as they were in your plan, then, Father, you can certainly use any of us, not because we are greater, but because we are just as weak as they are. Give us that encouragement, Father, the thought that though we're learning from them and seeing your power through them, we can turn that mirror to us, Father, and we can say, You can use us. You can strengthen us despite our our weaknesses. You can make something glorious out of something 
so weak. That's a way we should think not only of ourselves, Father, but even of Oak Hill Bible Church. Something small, something weak in its own power, but something you can do great things with, Father. And in fact, according to your word, you delight to use the weak things of the world, Father, to shame the things that are strong. Use us, Father. Use what we know. Use what we offer in our strength and gifts. Use our hearts. Give us a weak Father to witness. Give us a weak Father to pray and to consider all that you're doing in our lives and in this fellowship. And then bring us back here, Father. I pray you would include others with us so that we may share what we have and continue to mold us into the image of Christ. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.